Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello and welcome to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jeff Dufour, Editor-in-Chief of National Journal, sitting in for Bill, who is currently in Italy as a fellow of the American Academy in Rome. No word yet on whether Bill is going to get an audience with the Pope, but we'll assume that he is. Here in Washington, D.C., it's about 8.30 in the morning on Friday, March 24th. Dominating our week was a seemingly interminable waiting game to see whether Manhattan D.A. Alvin Bragg and his grand jury would indict Donald Trump or not. And it seems like all that waiting was in vain. The grand jury's last day in session came and went on Thursday with no announcement. But while that sucked up everyone's attention on Twitter, the political world continued to turn. Here to help us sort it all out, Sarah Wire, National Security, Justice Department, and Washington Accountability Reporter for the Los Angeles Times, Leah Escarnum, Senior Editor at Grid News, and Lauren Burke, Writer for Black Press USA, and The Guardian. Sarah, we did not get an indictment this week. What should we read into this, if anything, uh, uh, this, this delay of a few days? I would be cautious about reading anything into it. You know, it was former President Trump who set that deadline of Tuesday. Um, yes. You know, it wasn't something we heard from the DA's office. And, you know, delays are very common with grand juries. I mean, they've been working for a very long time now, um, you know, getting their ducks in the row and, you know, dotting I's and crossing T's. That's what a DA is supposed to do before they ask a grand jury to weigh charges. Sure. But we had a couple other Trump cases this week that also had big developments. Uh, a judge ruled that E. Jean Carroll's defamation suit against Trump can go forward and the jury will be anonymous. And another judge ruled that special counsel Jack Smith can get Trump lawyer Evan Corcoran's notes and compel him to testify, uh, suggesting that because it was likely a crime afoot, uh, that attorney-client privilege doesn't apply. Um, which of these, or maybe even another one, uh, was the biggest legal story in your mind this week in, in Trump world? The biggest legal story was definitely uh, the attorney-client privilege and uh, compelling uh, Trump's lawyer to testify before the special counsel grand jury. Um, you know, judges don't do this lightly. Mm-hmm. And there had to be a pretty convincing case for not only the chief judge for the D.C. Circuit to uh, do it, but for the appeals court to uh, to rule so quickly this week. It was a matter of less than 24 hours between them taking up the case and making a decision. And so he's supposed to actually testify before the grand jury as soon as today. And that, you know, really changes the tenor of what's going on. Sure. Lauren, uh, let's get you in here. What can we take away from how we saw Republicans uh, react this week? Uh, They talked about hauling Alvin Bragg before Congress. Trump effectively said three of the prosecutors going after him, Bragg, Letitia James in New York and Fannie Willis in Atlanta, uh, were doing so out of racism because they're black and he's white. Um, 
Late last night, Trump even warned of, quote, potential death and destruction on Truth Social if he's indicted. Um, <clears throat> I count, by my count, six other cases, uh, apart from Bragg's case, that Trump has to be worried about. Um, is this going to be the Republican playbook over and over and over again uh, from, from now until potentially the 2024 election? Uh, likely, Jeff, <laughs> very likely. Um, I think that, you know, what he uh, wrote last night on Truth Social is certainly the playbook. Obviously, what we saw January 6, 2021 is the playbook. The other playbook is just attention with, with Donald Trump. Obviously, we remember last week he predicted that he would be arrested on Tuesday. And of course, nothing happened. That kept him in the news. And uh, we're in a news business that uh, makes money off of clicks, views, and just general attention. And uh, we all fell for it. Right. We all <laughs> we fell for it again. And so with the metrics of all of that, we're talking about Trump all week. And then, of course, nothing happens. You know, as somebody who grew up in New York, um, I can't say I grew up with Donald Trump, but I certainly grew up watching him in the news. And he's very good at messaging. He's very good at keeping the attention on himself. He's very good at keeping the narrative on a certain thing and off of a certain thing. And of course, uh, you know, there's always this sort of hint of danger, quite frankly, with him after what we saw in January 2021, where he's now signaling his supporters that, oh, there's going to be trouble in this, these three black prosecutors uh, after me. You know, in, in the case of Al Alvin Bragg, of course, you know, his reaction was what I would think it would be as somebody who was born in the Bronx, which is I'm not even going to actually react and have my spokesperson do it. I'm not listening to Jim Jordan or anything else. And of course, the tenor of Jim Jordan is you have to come hither and explain yourself. Um, obviously, this is a huge separation of powers moment. Um, yeah. I would have loved to see, uh, you know, Robert Morgenthau, who was the Manhattan DA uh, from the 70s on, he passed away a few years ago. I would have loved to see his reaction to this. And I would love to hear Cyrus Vance Jr. in this moment. I mean, the idea that Congress is somehow going to interfere with some sort of an investigation in New York, not happening, not happening. So that is watching this back and forth is going to get obviously more interesting. Well, and, and you mentioned Cy Vance, his... Um, his decision not to pursue this case has become a big talking point for Republicans as well. Absolutely. Why he dropped it, but suddenly Bragg now picks it up again and is moving toward an indictment. You're absolutely correct. And of course, the delay by Alvin Bragg is something that people have spoken about a lot. And now we're you know, sort of talking too about, is this the case they should be bringing? Is this going to be the case that a president of the United States <laughs> you know, gets prosecuted on? And I think Alvin Bragg has really got to sit seriously and really think about that, given all of the other things that we know that Trump has said, mostly on the record, uh, that could also be seen as, you know, legal violations. So, again, uh, we sure will be talking about this, whether it happens or not. We will continue to talk about Donald Trump. Right. Leah, there's a school of thought uh, among Republicans. We've heard it uh, from Lindsey Graham and Elise Stefanik this week to name two that this helps Trump that it guarantees his renomination, uh, maybe even guarantees his, his reelection come next year. Uh, Chris Christie, on the other hand, says not so fast. Let's listen to Christie. I don't think that the American people probably see this as a huge crime, but the, the, the vision of a former president of the United States being processed, fingerprinted, mugshotted, being indicted, I don't think it ever helps anybody. Leah, who's right here on the politics? 
Well, <laughs> I think there are no guarantees on either end here. Uh, we know that you know right after Trump made this announcement that Republicans, rather than kind of supporting him, they supported the idea that um, that the district attorney was corrupt or was uh, funded by you know George Soros. We heard like the exact same line from yeah. dozens of Republicans, but we didn't actually see them get behind Trump that much. It was more kind of getting behind his message. I think that what we've seen is that Trump still has the ability to set the narrative, something that he was able to do in 2016 and, you know, to to a lesser extent, but in some ways, 2020. Um, What we're seeing now is even when we have Republicans who have not gotten behind him yet, who have not endorsed him. They're still repeating his talking points. I will add that after Mar-a-Lago, we saw Republicans get really um, worked up in defense of Trump initially. And then once the details came out, it just took a couple of weeks for some of that support to begin to soften. So wait and see, I guess. Speaking of the nomination and his opponents, um, Ron DeSantis had a seemingly rough week. Um, most recent polling shows Trump pulling away a little bit from DeSantis. Uh, he's in the 40s and 50s generally, whereas DeSantis is in the 20s and 30s. Uh, Leah, you are you are good at reading polls. Uh, so tell us, is it is it too early to put much stock in these numbers or is this a legitimate trend? It's too early to say whether this is a problem for Trump to win the nomination. I do think it's a trend that Trump's support is weakening, Um, not just in head-to-heads with Ron DeSantis, not just that polling where, you know, it asks, which would you choose between the two, but also just in terms of approval rating among Republicans. It's still incredibly high, um, but it used to be, you know, nearly universal. Um, that said, I think the key is to look at these polls state by state. We are not a country that elects or nominates presidents on a national ballot. And if the vote continues to divide, if, you know, Ron DeSantis ends up with 30 and, you know, you see some like Nikki Haley or whatever other candidates come forward splitting the rest of the vote, Um, Trump can absolutely win the nomination. It took Trump um, over a dozen states in 2016 before he ever reached a majority of the vote in any of the nominating states. Um, That was New York. Uh, But he still managed to, by the time he surpassed the 50% mark in New York, uh, he had already reached an insurmountable number of delegates. Right. Uh, Your friend and mine, Charlie Cook, and I have talked about this. Uh, The the, adva- the big advantage Trump has going in is that he's got a core base of support somewhere between 25 and 35 percent of the Republican Party that's not going anywhere, um, which means in a lot of these winner-take-all states, he may only need 10, he may need to find only 10 or 15 percent uh, more in order to get a plurality and win that state and exactly. win all the delegates. Exactly. I actually just wrote an article. uh, I think the headline is something like Trump doesn't need a majority. He just needs a third of the vote. So very much on the same page. Yeah. Maybe that's why DeSantis is starting to mix things up a little bit with Trump. Um, Asked about the Bragg case, uh, DeSantis said this. Let's listen. I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to, to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just I can't speak to that. 
Lauren, are the gloves starting to come off? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I do think DeSantis has a point there with regard to, you know, explaining this on a bumper sticker, this possible indictment uh, coming from New York is going to be difficult. It's not something that you can just completely understand you know, in a second. Now, maybe we understand it because we talk about it, we're covering it and all that. But I think the average person is going to be like eyes glazing over. I, you know, I think DeSantis, I, I do think, you know, to what you and Leah were just talking about, uh, I think it's a point well taken. Uh, you know, Trump's name recognition is going to be higher than anybody else's. I don't see anybody overtaking him uh, because I do think it just takes a few cycles to get in the sort of head of everybody. And even though DeSantis is in the news all the time, I don't. I, I don't. I find it difficult to believe that that somebody else is going to overtake. Like like Nikki Haley is going to come and beat Donald Trump. And you know, sure. I just don't see that scenario happening, barring some other serious thing like a health thing with Trump or something like that. So I, I don't know. I, I think he's still in the lead. I think the establishment of the Republican Party would love to substitute someone else that's like him that can get out the base and. Uh, you know, message really well. But in the end, I think the voters will go with what they're familiar with. Uh, you know, voters on the right will go with what they're familiar with and we'll see a rematch of um, yeah. two he's years. A, he's effectively an incumbent. He's got 100% right. name ID. Right. So, um, Sarah, DeSantis did backtrack on one point, however. Um, he was asked a few days ago about Ukraine and he called it a quote-unquote territorial dispute. The backlash was fierce, even among Republicans, uh, so much so that he said he was he said later on that he was mischaracterized and he made it very clear that he thinks Putin is a war criminal. Um, were you surprised that those remarks were so ill received by his own party? Um, and is the isolationist wing in the GOP starting to lose a little bit of clout? I think the isolationist wing in the GOP happens to be the loudest. Ah, I'm not sure they're the biggest. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we've heard more members of Congress being very vocal about not wanting to give more money to Ukraine, not wanting to to play a role in this conflict. Uh, but you know, they're not the ones who hold the purse strings. Yeah. And you've got the chairman of the committees who are very vocally backing Ukraine. Um, you know, McCarthy's been a little—I don't want to say wishy-washy, but still negotiating the uh, with the conversation in the uh, House. But on the Senate side, McConnell is very firmly uh, behind Ukraine and behind, you know, the country continuing to support him. Um, so I wasn't surprised to see DeSantis make that comment at first. I think he was surprised at the, the scope of the backlash. Well, lots more to talk about this morning, including a spicy hearing with the TikTok <laughs> CEO and the continuing budget battles, which we will get to after a short break on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jeff Dufour, sitting in for Bill, along with Lauren Burke, Sarah Weyer, and Leah Escarnum. And today's podcast brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A. Good members of LIUNA, over half a million strong, they're the backbone of the labor industry, labor unions in this country, uh, doing construction work, uh, building new schools, roads and highways, water and sewer system treatment plants. Uh, in the energy field, building solar panels and wind turbines and old-fashioned pipelines, 
and in the public sector, some 70,000 members of the labor's union, supporting working families, providing good jobs and good benefits for working families in America. We salute the members of LIUNA and their president, President Terry O'Sullivan. Thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We are back on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jeff Dufour from National Journal sitting in for Bill, along with Sarah Wire from the Los Angeles Times, Leah Scarnham from Grid News, and Lauren Burke, who writes for The Guardian and Black Press USA. The head of TikTok appeared before the House Energy and Commerce Committee on Thursday, and it was ugly. He had almost no defenders in the room. Uh, here is a clip of him trying to defend himself. Mr. Chu, has ByteDance spied on Americans at the direction of the Chinese Communist Party? No. I ask you again, Mr. Chu, has ByteDance spied on American citizens? I don't think that spying is the right way to describe it. Not entirely convincing. Sarah, let's start with you. Um, Plenty of members of Congress went after him on concerns over national security and spying, and seemingly the rest of them went went at him over the app's effects on teens' mental health. Um, what, What struck you about the hearing? You know, it was kind of a PR mess for TikTok. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, you saw the same complaint that we've seen in the past about elected members of Congress talking about technology. You know, they came across as not quite knowing what they were talking about. And that came through very uh, frequently. Um, You know, I don't think the, the tech world was impressed. And I don't think the, you know, 150 million Americans who use the program or use TikTok were convinced. Um, so we'll see how this translates into actual legislation or if it does. Leah, this issue on TikTok and really the issue of China in general seems like one of the few uh, bipartisan areas of agreement uh, in a not very bipartisan Congress so far. Um, any surprises there for you? No, I mean, this is, I think, the issue that's for at least 
during the Biden administration has been uniting Democrats and Republicans. We saw in the 2022 midterms, um, Democrats who were running in uh, red or purple states and districts, um, talking about being tough on China as kind of their their one of their main credentials. Um, so this has been, I think, for a while, something that Democrats and Republicans have been finding common ground on. And uh, meanwhile, um, you know, the Biden administration has been um, pretty tough on China and making some pretty aggressive moves. Um, So it's, you know, kind of setting an environment for him to do what, you know, he's he's always wanted to do on China. Yeah. And even the um, the select committee on China, uh, among all of the new oversight initiatives that Republicans have launched, uh, some of them have have failed to launch, you could say. Uh, the China committee seems to be uh, among the most bipartisan and the most serious about about its job so far. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just, you know, it's, it's easier to come together on um, a common, for lack of a better word, enemy sometimes than um, in support of a common cause. And that is something that Democrats and Republicans have, have found in this Congress. Yeah. Lauren, House Republicans had their annual policy retreat down in Orlando this past week, um, and and talk over the budget and the debt ceiling consumed a lot of their time. Um, My colleague, Casey Wooten, reported that Republicans seem to be backing off their ambitious goals of balancing the budget in 10 years. Now they're just focusing on setting 2024 spending back at 2022 levels. Um, So with regards to the deficit and the debt, is anyone really serious about this anymore, or is it just at this point an impossibility to make the numbers work? Uh, it's an impossibility to make the numbers worth, and nobody's serious. I mean, the Republican <laughs> Party is not really a party of detailed governance, as we saw five five hours from also the Democrats. They're, they're a party of virtue signaling and co- culture wars that really are not, uh, you know, It doesn't work too well when you get into detailed or things that require detailed policies, such as numbers and math and the budget. (laughs) Like that's something that's going to require some detailed policy. And right now, this iteration of the Republican Party is just not particularly interested in that. So that's why they're having problems with these discussions that require a lot of policy detail and nuance. Of course, when you know, their virtue, virtue signaling uh, against China, that's really easy. It's really easy to do. Um, doesn't matter if there's no evidence that, um, you know, a particular social media company is doing X, Y, and Z. And apparently it doesn't matter that other social media companies such as Facebook and Google are in fact collecting our data uh, at the same rate as TikTok, if not more. I mean, this is just not a party that does deep dives into policy. They do a ton of cultural war, virtue signaling. We've all seen it. It continues. There's nothing to indicate that that's going to stop anytime soon. And um, that's the answer to that with regard to the budget. Yeah. Well, great conversation today with Lauren Burke, Sarah Weyer, and Leah Scarnham. Now it's Bill's favorite time of the show, your favorite story of the week, something that made you go, whoa, or just something you wanted to share. Uh, Sarah, would you like to start? Uh, mine's a little bit of a, a selfish one. Uh, the Los Angeles Times is going to stop using the term internment camp 
to reflect uh, what happened uh-huh. after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, in case, instead, they're going to use imprisonment, incarceration, and we had a couple of really great stories talking about the effects on U.S. citizens the long-term effects on U.S. citizens who were incarcerated, you know, people who weren't able to finish their degrees, uh, the, the shame it brought to their, to their families, families who were separated. Uh, it's definitely worth a read. We've got several really good stories on it. Great. I wonder if the Associated Press will follow through with their style guide. <laughs> yeah, good question. Uh, Leah, your favorite story of the week? So I'm going to cheat here as usual. Um, and I'm going to point to a story that's actually from January. Uh, this is uh, if now public that uh, Grid is being bought by the messenger. And uh, one of our stories that I think uh, is really important that Grid published uh, was from Steve Riley and Maggie Severns um, in early January of this year about uh, some conservative activists' plans to have the House Freedom Caucus um, act as a kind of third-party de facto European-style coalition government. And I think it's an important story to keep in mind as we go through the rest of this Congress. Hmm. Lauren, how about you? Um, I had a lot of trouble picking this because I can't figure out which Fox News story is more delicious from this (laughs) week. That would be my favorite story. But I think I've narrowed it down to the Amy Grossberg, who is a producer at Fox, who is is now saying that uh, she was in some way coerced to produce misleading testimony <laughs> regarding uh, the entire issues around Fox News with regard to them effectively lying on the air about whether or not the you know 2020 elections were were in some way bogus, which of course they were. Joe Biden won by eight million votes, but the entire Fox News thing is to me such a a window into how media, uh, and, and we have had, of course, other periods in this country of yellow journalism and, of course, you know, jur- journalistically infused politics. But this really, I'm just so shocked that Fox has not, did not settle this out of court because what's being revealed is effectively a big, you know, PR operation for a certain party. And by the way, this is in no way to say this doesn't happen on the left <laughs> because it does. But in this case, we're just seeing the details, of course, because it's in court. Uh, so I will just say generally that, that you know, I can't, again, pick which one. It's one of the New York Times stories uh, <laughs> that, I read, that I read this week uh, that just blew me away. Again, even though globally we knew that Fox was, you know, up to something, but to see the details are pretty remarkable. So I'll, I'll leave that out there. And Fox is a big enough company that they could have afforded to settle it, too. Exactly. That's right. That's right. As for me. Um, yes, I'm going to talk about basketball, uh, but not what happened in the tournament last night, even though it was a great night last night. Uh, my favorite story of the week is that my alma mater, Georgetown, has a new men's basketball coach at long last. His name is Ed Cooley. He comes from Providence College, a fellow Big E school, where he's had a good run of success. This is undoubtedly a good story. It warms my heart. It's a positive development, but it comes on the heels of a Shakespearean-level tragedy. That's the story of Patrick Ewing, who helped put Georgetown hoops on the map in the 1980s, won a national title, and went to another national championship game uh, before he had a Hall of Fame career with the New York Knicks. He took over the program as coach five years ago, got off to a decent start, but in the last two years, only eight programs in all of Division I basketball had a worse winning percentage than Georgetown. 
eight out of about 370 teams. At Georgetown, one of the most storied programs in the country. So things could not have ended up on a sadder note for Ewing, but at least now the program has literally nowhere to go but up. That's a wrap for this edition of the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. Our thanks to you for listening and to Sarah Wire, National Security, Justice Department, and Washington Accountability Reporter for the LA Times, Leah Scarnham, Senior Editor at Grid News, and Lauren Burke of Black Press USA and The Guardian. I'm Jeff Dufour, Editor-in-Chief of National Journal, sitting in for Bill, who has no doubt found a few new favorite stories while in Italy as a fellow of the American Academy in Rome. He left us a new podcast for next Tuesday with Simon Rosenberg, one of the sharpest Democratic political strategists. Rosenberg famously was just about alone in debunking the Republican red wave in the midterms. And Bill will host next week's Reporters Roundtable from Rome. Time change and all. Until then, thanks for listening to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable.